You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Hurwitz, here on the Westwood One Network at Conservative Review. It is June 11th, Monday afternoon. Hope you all enjoyed your weekend. I actually had a tremendous amount of fun this weekend. Uh, we, every year we have an annual tactical training session as a, just you know kind of a fun fundraiser for the local private school here. Uh, the local security is run by some current and retired Baltimore County SWAT team guys. And, you know, they just take us out for a fun steak and shoot. And it's pretty rare because I'm, I'm I'm only a member of an indoor range. And there's not much you can do there. You know, it's kind of boring. So it's pretty rare that you could do some nice tactical shooting. And... Uh, you know, I'm I'm just kind of sore from it, but it was tons of fun. And by the way, by the way, folks, you got to hear this. I used for the first time in tactical uh, tactical training my We the People holster. I took my trusty H and K VP9 out. I'm a big striker fired guy. I know some of you think that's crazy, but I love striker fired guns. But either way. I have my We the People holster, my outside the waistband, left-handed. Yes, that is the one thing I am a lefty with. I'm left-handed, and I'm telling you, it was. It felt great. It was so comfortable. It was secure. Um, I've used it at an indoor range before, but this is. These are really good custom designs. I'm telling you, you got to go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash conservative. Get ten bucks off your fir- first holster. Uh, 24 bucks with free shipping. You can't get better than that for, for a lot of the models. Um, outside the waistband, inside the waistband. Of course, I don't have an inside the waistband because I still can't carry here in the dumb state of Maryland where we don't have any rights, but a lot of you are from states where you still have the Second Amendment, so you can do that. Again, we the people holsters. I'm telling you, uh, you're seeing this with the censorship. You're seeing it today, obviously, with Chick-fil-A. Um, you're seeing it with marriage social values, but you're also seeing it with guns. A lot of gun accessory companies cannot sell their products or have difficulty. And I know my friends here at We The People holsters are having difficulty with that. So this is how you guys could support the Second Amendment, support free speech, and get yourself a really nice custom holster. And by the way, protect yourself against the doom that's coming from MS-13, from drug cartels, from criminal justice reform. So where where do we begin? Where do we begin today? Lots going on to set the table this week in Congress, the courts. um, You know, the courts, the Supreme Court is going to reach the crescendo of this year's term with all the high-profile cases coming out. And I want to start by touching on a case that came out today. Um, we didn't have the big cases, travel ban, internet sales tax, um, a couple others coming down the pike. But the one we had today was Ohio's uh, voter integrity law. So basically, you guys have been following this if you've been following me the last couple of years. Probably next to immigration, the biggest area of law that the courts have bastardized in recent years is um, – it's, it's election law. So what, what we found, if you're following it, is that the courts are nullifying every, every law to clean up the voter rolls. For example, you know anything asking for, for photo ID, proof of citizenship, that's the ultimate stolen sovereignty. You've had several circuit courts now say that states cannot simply just – ask you to provide proof of citizenship to register to vote. And the Supreme Court has not taken up those cases. They've actually downright denied cert. 
for a lot of these cases, I know the Arizona one was a big one, they block states from um, prohibiting what's called ballot harvesting when you basically have third-party organizations submit uh, uh, thousands of uh, absentee ballots. You know, th- There's no constitutional unalienable right for you to have someone else be able to hand in your ballot for you. You know, a state definitely has an interest and in, in, in the power to clamp down on that. And then obviously you get all sorts of early voting mandates now, same-day registration or how many days of registration you have to have. I, I, I could go on and on. I've written about this dozens of times. Um, and then certainly redistricting. They're nullifying every single Republican map while keeping every Democrat map, of course. So this is a big problem that, that the federal courts have now ventured into this. So one of the cases in the Sixth Circuit was Ohio, where basically, you know, Secretary of State Husted there found that there were 1.3 million duplicate registrants and 465,000 dead voters still registered to vote. Now, look, that's fine. I mean, people die, but then a state has the power and I would argue indeed the responsibility to from time to time clean up those voter rolls because you know when you leave all that dead wood there on the on the list it's rife with rife with fraud especially when you have such an effort on the other side to engage in fraud so they, they had a very fair simple solution what they did and, and and this is just the case today and you know we won five to four it was a victory. But I want to explain to you why, again, it's narrow and why this case proves my point that if we don't take care of the judicial tyranny in the lower courts, even when you once in a while get Supreme Court victories, it doesn't mean much. So what, what – just for, first some background here, just, just some background. 1993, President Clinton signed the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. Um, it's what we often refer to as the Motor Voter Act. Um, now, look, most of this bill was horrible. It, it placed numerous mandates on the states to mollycoddle people into voting, You know, get more people involved, automatically sign them up, all sorts of nonsense. It started this whole revolution that has really accelerated to this day to you know, get the state involved in encouraging people to vote, which there's no reason the feds should be pressuring the states to get more people involved. I don't even think states should do it on their own. Heck, there's too many people who vote and have no no clue what they're voting for. Now, obviously, the other side will say, Daniel, you support voter suppression. Well, look, not mollycoddling people into voting is not tantamount to voter suppression. You know, if they feel strong enough, go out and do it. It's not a big deal, especially with the internet these days. Go and sign up. We don't need to, you know, advertise for it. But anyway, Section Five of this Act, in particular, otherwise, you know, that that's the motor voter section. You know, th- th- this was just a needless intrusion into what was supposed to be an exclusive authority of states. Article One, Section Four of the Constitution. You know, basically ensures that states control the times, methods, and procedures of elections, except um, you know, once in a while it, it does leave open the ability of Congress, not the courts, but Congress to get involved. Uh, Hamilton felt that was only under, quote, extraordinary circumstances. He writes that in Federalist Papers. Um, but either way, either way, there was a provision to balance the mandates so on the one hand, you're, you're asking them to really swell their voter rolls, but on the other hand, you want to prevent against fraud. So Section 8 of the law, this was the, you know, the Motor Voter Law in 1993, gave states the opportunity to clean its voter rolls through a process of its choice. Right? It allows it open-ended. And the statute is very clear. It's very clear that they could choose whatever they feel is prudent to ensure that you don't have duplicative and fraudulent dead voters uh, registered to vote. The only limitation on that power was that that they cannot knock someone off solely because of the failure to vote. You know, just that they have an inactive status. So, you know, that was that was pretty clear. And, and indeed, in Section Eight, it actually requires the states to quote 
make a reasonable effort to remove the names of ineligible voters from the official list of eligible voters. So it actually requires states to do that. Um, and, you know, the blue states aren't doing that. But I don't agree with everything in this law, but even even this motor voter law does require states to officially do that. And it was common sense. So now, what did Ohio do? Just so you know, because you're going to hear a lot of things about purging voters and, uh, you know, voter suppression. Basically, what the what the case was is that they used voter inactivity as the basis to start examining, not to throw you off, but to start examining. And they employed a process whereby, you know, they used this data databases to match up names that have not updated their registration or voted for the last two years. So they never had any contact with the state board of elections. They never voted. They never, you know, updated their status. It's kind of dormant. Okay, fine. At that point, the state sends out an address confirmation notice to that address requesting the voter verify their status. You know, just say, hey, has anything changed? You know, have you moved? Are you still alive? If the voter fails to respond to that, and here's the kicker, and in addition to not responding to the letter, they they fail to vote for the next four consecutive years after the issuance of that notice, then and only then would the Board of Elections remove their name from the rolls. Right? It's very, very reasonable. And look, there's nothing permanent. This is not a matter of disqualifying someone. If somehow they woke up from the dead from years of oblivion like that, they could always just simply re-register to vote. It's not like you're disqualified, like you know, you're blacklisted because you didn't respond to a state notice. No, I mean if you're taken off, so then right now you're not on, just register to vote. Okay, so I mean this is a pretty common sense thing. The Obviously ACLU takes it to court. The district judge upheld it, the Sixth Circuit, which is, again, one of the less harmful circuits, uh, said it was a problem. And I, if I remember correctly, one of the judges was a um, – Republican, George W. Bush appointee, and they said, no, you can't do it. Right? And, and this was, this was um, over 18 months ago. So today, in an opinion written by Justice Alito, Kennedy was still sane enough to join along with it. They reversed the Sixth Circuit. Okay, so they said very clearly, you read the statute, it's plain as day that states could do whatever they want on this as long as they don't use inactivity as the sole um, the sole factor in just, you know, oh, I haven't heard from you and just take people off willy-nilly and, and totally fine. Okay. And, and obviously, you know, the four left-wing nuts, it's it just, it, it just scary how this was a nine to nothing. It was just a straight-up constitutional um, statutory interpretation and even then, Sotomayor goes nuts and says, oh, you know, you're not looking at the history of voter suppression. And Alito was saying, well, look, you can have these philosophical debates all you want, but what does statute say? You know, if you don't like it, if you think there needs to be greater protection, so go, go take care of that. Now, why am I bringing up this case? Because this is emblematic of how even a win is not really – doesn't really do us much good. Now, this is not similar to my criticism on the masterpiece case with the Baker religious liberty, where downright the win was peppered with language that was bad. The opinion from Alito is fine. But the point is this. We don't win Rose and Obergefell's. We don't win broad victories. Because what happens? So now all these lawsuits against every single voter integrity law are gone? No. All it is is this narrow case of this process that Ohio used. Okay, so now they're fine. And, and by the way, after 18 months of being encumbered thanks to a lower court. So that's just one point right away. Again, lower courts should never, in my view, have the power to encumber basic, important laws just willy-nilly. At least the injunction should be stayed and. Pending the appeal to the Supreme Court. 
In other words, if we're going to make the Supreme Court king over the other branches and over the 50 states, they got to be king over their stupid lower courts. And when you have ridiculous opinions from lower courts that you know even the liberal Supreme Court, and yes, it is a liberal Supreme Court, is going to overturn, why should states have to suffer from and, and you know this was relatively expeditious, eighteen months. I mean, often they languish for five to seven years, and often they never get taken up. And this is what's happening. See, it looks like we're winning a number of cases, but what you don't see is all the cases where the lower courts screw us, and Supreme Court denies a, the appeal. So they're you know they essentially stand. Just last week, just last week, an Indiana federal judge. Blocked Indiana's, you know, Section 8 process. I don't mean Section 8 housing. <laughs> Section 8 of the motor voter law. Um, to identify out-of-state voters. Voters that are registered out-of-state and go after them. Like, hey, you're registered out-of-state. Like, dude, what's the deal? Now, you, you, you know, I, I saw um, one listener, uh, I believe Jeremy, he tagged me on Twitter today. Asking, hey, you know, what are the ramifications for the Indiana case? I don't think it's going to stop. Now, you might say it's likely that the Supreme, you know, when it gets to the Supreme Court, they'll say, no, this is part of our ruling in Houston in the Ohio case. But again, it's right now there's an injunction. Why should we have this paralysis? You see what I mean? See, when when you have Obergefell, so. The courts say marriage is no longer a marriage. Done. Gone. In every single state, in every single circumstance, they don't even put up a fight. The building block of civilization is gone. Whereas when we win something at the court, the left will just limit it to that application and they'll come back and continue fighting it and the lower courts will continue siding with them. And often the Supreme Court is slow to enforce its own precedent, like we see with the, the, the gun issues every pretty much every month. With the blue states violating Heller and the lower courts violating Heller, Supreme Court won't grant cert. So I'm just telling you, this is a huge problem. We're finding this, we're finding this, like I said, in, in Arizona, but a number of states, we can't even... We have so many illegals voting because of motor voter. But again, obviously, they don't have to vote under motor voter. States have the right to purge them, but the courts aren't letting them. And the Supreme Court has refused to take up that case, which I would argue is even more important than that. So I'm just trying to give you another example of how there's this phenomenon at the courts where – we're winning some skirmishes, but losing the war. Just like you saw with religious liberty last week. We won a very narrow skirmish, but actually we're losing the broader war. And, you know, just just this week it was noted that the Supreme Court declined to take up the appeal from the lower court that forced the photographer in New Mexico. I'm sorry, not the photographer. I'm Arlene, uh, this is Ar- the Arlene case, uh, Arlene's Flowers in Washington. That's Barnell Stutzman. Um, she's being forced to, uh, you know, by the Ninth Circuit, or it might be, it might be the Washington Supreme Court, actually, strike that, Washington Supreme Court, to uh, violate her conscience. And, the, and, you know, the court, now the court didn't deny it. They just didn't address it. They didn't, you know, say anything. But this is, this is part of the problem. And indeed, Kennedy said blatantly that as a general rule, you have to service someone else's um, what, what they want, even if it violates your conscience. It was just this case was different. He made that very clear. So there's something funny happening in the courts now where ironically we're going to start – winning a number of cases at the Supreme Court, and it's going to look like a pretty good month. But really, it portends something that's bad. Because, you know what I mean? Like, let's say, let's say, uh, I don't know, you're the Confederacy in 1864 in the Civil War. And 
the skirmishes are already getting to the outskirts of Richmond. And at that point, you're still pushing them back. You're still winning. Are you winning? No. <laughs> the fact that you're having the skirmishes that deep into your territory, you're on life support. And it's the same thing here. The fact that we even have to litigate some of this stuff. Oh, do illegal aliens have the right to break in, demand anything, demand the right to come here? Well, in this case, like, like I told you, the travel ban, it might come as early as Thursday. It might come next Monday, probably one of the two, at latest the week after. Um, you know, it's going to be a narrow five to four win, narrow in terms of the vote, narrow in terms of the um, jurisprudence, because – you know, basically, the courts are saying that we no longer have sovereignty. So the Supreme Court's going to say, look, l- hey, lower courts, it doesn't go quite that far. So you might be like, hey, we're winning at the Supreme Court, but are these victories? And again, this is just, you know, me again reiterating the courts need to be, sh- the, the lower courts need to be stripped of power to overturn state, Im- you know, immigration laws, federal immigration laws, um, and, and, and election laws. You know, I noted my piece today on this Ohio case that Republicans don't care about issues. I mean, we know that. They don't care about immigration. They don't care about religious liberty. So they're not really bothered by what the courts are doing. But don't they care about their own power? I mean, forget about conservative Republicans. Establishment Republicans won't be able to win elections anymore if, you know, we can't have photo ID at at the polls preventing illegals from voting. So once again, you could always count on Clarence Thomas and his concurrence to go back to where the Constitution is. So, I mean, this debate was, you know, whether statute prevented states from not having dead people vote. And, you know, it was clear, as Alito said, rightfully so, that, of course, statute doesn't say that. Thomas comes in with his concurrence and rightfully notes. And again, you know, you could always see an ominous warning from Thomas that, wait a minute. Even if statute meant that, it would be unconstitutional. Being statute can't mean, I mean, if it didn't mean that, it's a problem. The election clause, Article 1, Section 4, I believe, Clause 1. Yeah, it's Clause 1, vests states with the power to regulate the times, places, manner of federal elections. Certainly state elections. At the um, Virginia Ratifying Convention... Madison defended this arrangement, and he said, quote, it was found necessary to leave the regulation of federal elections in the first place to the state governments as being best acquainted with the situation of the people. Okay, so that was that was very clear than intent to the founders. Now, e- even though the second half of the election clause does grant Congress the right to regulate elections when necessary – so a couple things here. First of all, as I said, Federalist 59, Hamilton said it's only under extraordinary circumstances. Um, you know, obviously, you know, like you had during the Recon- Reconstruction era where downright they weren't allowing blacks to vote in the South. Also, the federal courts have no power of enforcing this. It's all with Congress. You know, it's funny. Whenever a power is given to Congress, somehow they wiggle in the courts there. No, no, no. It didn't say the courts. Congress. And then finally, if you understand that power, it was primarily for the purpose of ensuring that elections are indeed held and that Congress isn't abolished altogether by the states. So Hamilton says this plainly. In other words, the founders never – when they gave that one little – loophole for Congress to get involved. They didn't mean Congress to say you have to have 30 days of early voting or you have to have motor voter laws and and mollycoddle people into voting. The only the reason why they just left one ability of Congress to regulate this is just because what they were scared, you know, at the time of the founding when, you know, the states were very strong and you're just creating the federal union, a lot of states were kind of reluctant to join. They were scared the states would just get together and say, screw it. We're not going to hold federal elections at all. We're just not going to hold them and abolish Congress. So that's all they wanted, to just hold them. But in terms of the procedures, the eligibility, the voter registration, that was all left to the states. You know, Roger Sherman, one of the greatest of the founders, made it clear that even in the rare intervention, you know, when Congress gets involved – 
He said very clearly, quote, but the qualifications of the electors are to remain as fixed by the constitutions and laws of the several states. Okay? So when you're talking about qualifications to vote, that is all up to the states. You know, it's the same thing with felons voting. You know, this this is another very big problem we have. I didn't write about that today, but in Florida, so, you know, this ties obviously into some of our discussion we want to get to today, if we have time, um, with criminal justice deform. But, you, you know, so a lot of them, obviously, what's the end goal of Soros? It's always having more Democrat voters. That's why we have the amnesty agenda, and this is why we have the jailbreak agenda. It's the same outcome to get more Democrat voters. Fine. But even in the states where they're not doing that, in Florida, you now have federal courts saying that they must have felons vote. It's unbelievable. And Florida was actually addressing the issue. They were going to have a ballot initiative on this to let the people decide in November and that wasn't good enough for the courts. You know that 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 that's the thing. Um, Senator Jacob Howard, right? He was very famous as uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, one of the prime drafters of the Fourteenth Amendment. He made it very clear during the floor debate in 1866. Quote: The second section leaves the right. This is the second section of the. 14th Amendment leaves the right to regulate the elected franchise still with the states and does not meddle with that right. Okay? So, you know, anyone telling you that, oh, Daniel, don't talk about Article 1, Section 4 because the 14th Amendment afterwards countermanded that. No, it did not. Indeed, even to have blacks vote, you needed the 15th Amendment to come after the 14th. And uh, it's just it's just unbelievable. What's happening now? So anyway, that's that's the thing with with the courts today, and 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 again, uh, you know, I'm just going to reiterate, going back to masterpiece last week, it is astounding that to this day, to this day, there is nobody saying what I'm saying. There is no effort in the states or on a federal level from any of these so-called social conservative groups to push back. And start pushing Mississippi-style laws to protect conscience and property rights. Mississippi, to this day, is the only state with that law. And nobody's doing this. They're too busy promoting a jailbreak. Which brings me to jailbreak. Oh, and, and by the way, just one other thing. Um, you know, the, the, the courts are now at the point where... They're essentially saying anyone who has a sob story for a deportation, even you know, even if they're a criminal alien, we're going to stay their deportation. So there's that. But jailbreak, um, you know, when I was when I was talking to you know these law enforcement officers, SWAT guys in Baltimore County, and you know it's pretty raw here after the murder of that cop by a juvenile who was on home confinement instead of in jail precisely because the very criminal justice deform that that the Cokes and the whatever and, and Soros are, are promoting. And by the way, the Cokes today are out with hundreds of thousands more in ads promoting jailbreak. So this is their number one priority now, next to amnesty. You know, so anyway, I was talking to these cops and it was amazing. They didn't even know about this. And now in Maryland, they know that we always have problems with the Maryland state legislature, but they were unaware of what's going on on the federal level. And what scared me is that we won this issue so handily for two decades that it's almost counterintuitive that you know we, we went home. We, we won the law and order issue, and then slowly Soros and his crowd started putting his troops back on the field. And we didn't pay attention, and now they're just winning without firing a shot. And our people still don't realize that we're losing this issue. We're losing this issue really bad. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what to do about this. 
So we're going to be following that in the coming days. And I'm not going to relent on this issue. This is an issue we can't afford to lose. I'm willing to break relationships over this. And this is a broader problem of how the president, even when he's good on an issue, the bad guys get in, convince him to completely do a 180. And our guys are like, Daniel, I don't want to break my relationship with the White House. So no one's getting in the president's face and saying, Mr. President, even if you're succumbing to some of these sob stories, what about the sob stories that you spoke about for so many years on on the victim side, on the law enforcement side? To have a balanced approach to this, that with every leniency, to have more stringent policies and laws in place um, for drug traffickers going forward. What happened to your promise of the death penalty? Mr. President, are you going to support... You know, Tom Cotton's bill, increasing penalties for heroin and fentanyl traffickers. But there's no pressure. No group is doing this because I don't want to ruin my my relationship. There's a very big problem now. And, and, and it's manifesting itself with immigration, too. And I'm not asking anyone to write a column saying, you know, Trump sucks. I'm saying you you, you show him how. You know, he's not fulfilling his agenda and he's getting bad advice. On Capitol Hill, you know, a number of members did circulate my article, my whole strategy that I want to get to about, you know, how Trump could use veto power and the budget process and leverage the veto against the budget bills and also do certain things unilaterally to begin changing the tide. And treating Congress like North Korea in terms of negotiations on immigration. But my fear is watching the way they're, you know, everyone is so into Alice Johnson, oh, and the pardons, and oh, there's there's too many people in jail, um, you know, j- just because now they know about it because Trump made a big deal a- about it. My fear is if Trump were to support amnesty tomorrow, which the White House is still negotiating with this, we're going to lose everyone. You know, I've heard from people in ICE and Border Patrol, that this is becoming a big problem. That a number of people who are with us are not willing to take it to the, say, hey, Mr. President, you know, DHS leadership is not changing. They're not implementing your agenda. You're not getting good advice. Because guess what? Notice how, notice how once Chris Crane, who's the um, head of the ICE union, notice how once he spoke out against the administration, Fox won't have him on anymore. And this is the problem. See, I don't care. But everyone else I know is either intellectually vapid, so they get sucked into whatever agenda they're seeing, or if they know it's wrong, they're like, yeah, what am I going to do? Uh, you know. It's a prominent person that you know we wanted to speak out against this agenda to let out drug traffickers, and he was like, "Yeah, I agree," but like you know, man, I'm, I don't want to burn my bridges. Let me ask you something. I understand the idea of standing down that you can't fight on every issue. You know, you're going to stand down on issue A, B, and C, so I could fight on issues D, E, and F. But I haven't seen the D, E, and F. What are those issues? What is the issue that we're doing great on? Are we getting the president? You know, the Senate is working on amendments to the NDAA this week. Where are the amendments? Where are the groups pressuring the president to pressure members of Congress to introduce amendments to the NDAA, which is it's very important because that passes every year. It's considered a must-pass bill to block the transgender agenda, to protect chaplains who are being forced into the homosexual agenda in our military. To, to fight the social engineering with, with women in combat at all costs and lowering standards. Nothing. Nothing. You can't drain the swamp if you go along with the swamp. If you're like, Daniel, but the swamp's doing this. I can't speak out. So shut up then. So leave. Find a different career if that's what you're all about. I totally don't get it. So anyway, about that strategy I was talking about, I, I wrote an article last week, and I just want to reiterate the main points here. 
There's a four-letter word, and it starts with a V. and ends with an O. It's called veto. See, the president might not realize, but he has a veto pen. And he could leverage his agenda by threatening early and often a veto pen. The biggest issue that all of us are probably monitoring over the next few days and weeks, weeks, and this is going to come to a crescendo tomorrow, is this dis- discharge petition where uh, members of the House have the ability to force a floor vote on a bill if they get 218 members sign it to discharge it from committee. Now, you got every Democrat and 23 Republicans supporting it, the MS-13 Republicans, and uh, you know they're going to get the votes. Now everyone's like, well, what do you do to stop it? Well, let me ask you a question. Did the president ever threaten a veto? I mean, th- this petition has been going on for a month, at least. How come he's never threatened a veto? A, threaten a veto, and B, publicly demand that Mitch McConnell say he's not going to bring it up for a vote in the Senate. Done. Okay, so let it pass the House. That's number one. Number two, the president should say, here are my demands. Mitch McConnell, you just uh, said you're canceling most of August recess. Here's what you need to do during that recess. You need to craft a budget bill that will come due at the end of September to package the military, so defense spending with Homeland Security. And this will take security away from the general non-security spending issue, so we could fight spending and debt a little bit later. But you'd make it all about his priorities and what a sane president would do and what a sane conservative movement would have the president do and would scream this every day is you spend every day of July and August – having a national debate over MS-13, over drugs and amnesty and the nexus of all of that. Rather than going backwards on those issues, rather than having criminal justice deform and letting drug traffickers out and saying we need amnesty, DACA is a solution. We need a DACA fix. Oh, we need a DACA fix, all right. We need to fix the mayhem created by this, you know, I'm going to link to in show notes, the Washington Post has a riveting article on MS-13 in my home state of Maryland and what it's doing to the schools and, you know, drugs and everything. That's where it's coming from. It's all the UACs who came in from DACA. But we don't make the case. We don't even make the case. But anyway, he does it under the threat of, of, of veto from day one. Day one. Every single day. At six to seven a.m. in the morning, Trump needs to put, go go to you know go on Twitter like he does pretty much every morning, and say I will veto any DHS funding bill, any budget bill that does not contain the wall, defund sanctuary cities, strip the courts of jurisdiction over immigration, and then whatever else he wants to do on asylum, UACs, that type of stuff. But he doesn't do it. And, and what you would do is he would spend every day harnessing the bully pulpit. I would give a speech to Congress on this issue. Primetime television address. Trump always does very well in those addresses. Talk about the drug crisis and MS-13 and how it all came from DACA. Talk about that. The drug crisis is such a big issue, and yet... We're we're misdiagnosing it. And just this week, by the way, Congress is starting a series of 20 votes in the House on just – I mean most of the stuff is just nonsense and feel-good stuff. I mean it's not terrible from what I've seen yet, but I'm going to comb through the bills. There are a couple that that likely are bad. But it's just off topic. The same people – you know, one of the bills is from CatGo from New York. This is a guy who signed on to the discharge petition. He's an MS-13 Republican. He supports the agenda – that defines the drug crisis. And he has the nerve to say we need legislation to combat opioids? Get a life. But the president needs to identify this. Why is it that you know, we're only getting the president to focus on the left-wing agenda? Again, domestically, there's a lot going on foreign policy-wise. What's going on good, and we'll comment on the North Korea summit when we know more. But I'm just saying domestically, why isn't he every day shaming the MS-13 Republicans on the discharge petition? Where is he? Where's the conservative movement demanding that of him? Oh, there is no conservative movement, but I digress.
That's what he needs to do. Give a primetime speech on this. Heck, give a speech from the Oval Office every Thursday night on this issue. Go go to communities, ravage. Do more what you did with that Long Island um, roundtable, but do it everywhere. Go to the border. More photo ops. Use that bully pulpit. Use the bully pulpit, the automatic threat of a veto. Heck, veto another, but just take a bill and veto it just for the sake of it, just to show that you mean business. Show you're not scared of a budget showdown. And every day you direct, you know, he's the head of the party, direct the RNC to run ads against anyone. Crush Heidkamp and Tester and Casey and Manchin, McCaskill, all these guys in vulnerable states. Crush them on this issue. That's what a real fight would look like. And again, his leverage all gets back to the veto. You can't pass a budget bill if he vetoes it. But nobody is putting this on his radar. And then do things unilaterally. Like I said before, don't let them in. Now, I see Sessions, for his part, looks like he is trying to direct them to reinterpret asylum. Definition of asylum. Now, I have to find out more on that. This is you know just breaking right now. And I have to see, you know, the interplay between DOJ and DHS, you know, how that works. But anyway, um, that, that's the strategy. And folks, I mentioned this before, but I wrote an article on Friday, and we'll link to this in show notes as well, on a new combined DHS-DOJ report on the extent of crime from illegal Im- immigrants in this country. And this piece, I want you to read this piece because I tie in criminal justice deform and immigration, the two tied together. Because on a federal level, so much of the crime, anywhere from a quarter to a third of the people in the federal uh, criminal justice system are foreign nationals. So, look, we should be worried about crime. That should be the issue. But if your issue is incarceration and costs, so you should want to do what we want to do on immigration and sovereignty, and you're, you're going to really take a pretty large bite out of that apple by preventing this. These are all avoidable crimes. We have our own problems. We have a lot of violence in our culture. Why are we importing it? We don't have to be doing this. Imagine if we didn't have the incentive, the magnet of Kids and amnesty and dreamers. We'd be very clear. You come over that border, you are gone. Expedited deportation is the law of the land for everyone. Done. You would deter it. This is what the, see, this is what they don't understand also with the domestic criminal justice policy, the concept of deterrent. Like, oh man, we're gonna lock all these people. Well, no, hopefully you you won't have to lock up that many because you're gonna deter it. If but you know, you do have to be willing to follow through with it, which is why it's so dangerous to start this precedent of sob stories of people finding Jesus in jail or, you know, becoming an ordained minister. That's that's beautiful. But you know, if we're gonna make that a policy and start letting a number of people go afterwards, then you're gonna lose that deterring power. But anyway, a lot of these people if you didn't have amnesty, if you didn't have uh, the, the, the benefits in the K-12 through education we give them and you know, obviously the jobs if we had mandatory verify, um, sanctuary cities, and again, expedited deportation, you wouldn't have so many of these people clogging up the system. But it's, it's more than that. So there's 57,820 foreign nationals in DOJ custody. 57,820. Let's talk about that first. And then we'll talk about if there's too many people in the federal system. You know, there's, there's almost 20,000 confirmed aliens. Really, there's likely a few thousand more unconfirmed in the U.S. Marshal Service custody, you know, with pretrial detainees and everything awaiting sentencing or whatever. And that accounts for 37% of those in U.S. Marshal custody. That's insane. If you did what I want to do on immigration, you wouldn't have that. Then come back to me if you have a you know prison cost over incarceration problem. Let's first deal with what we should all agree we shouldn't be incarcerating other people's criminals, uh, other countries' criminals. What I mean is 
not to go weak on them. I mean not to have them here in the first place. But it, it, it gets worse than that. 46% of known or suspected aliens in BOP custody had committed drug trafficking. So, you know, obviously this is a big narrative that, oh, too many people sitting in prison for stupid drug charges. So, you know, again, first of all, it's not drug possession that's just not really done anymore. It was never done on the federal level. Um, it's drug trafficking. So that's first of all. Second of all, um, yes, roughly 45% of those in federal prison are on drug charges, but a couple things are in order. Number one is that's the federal system that only accounts in itself for 11% of the incarcerated population. Most of them are in state prison where it's, it's a much lower ratio on drug charges. But moreover, this is the thing. I don't have the exact numbers, but f- at least 40% of those in federal prison on drug charges are foreign nationals. That's why they're in the federal system because of their immigration status. So again, this overlaps with immigration. It's an immigration problem. It's a sovereignty problem. And then moreover, as we've said many, many, many times, even with the Americans – um, you know, often, often, often they were arrested on armed robbery charges, even murder, um, like Kate Steinle's um, murder. They had a robust state record, but the state was going weak on them, and the feds came in and tried to, you know, see how they could u- use a federal statute to go after them. Um, there's a lot more involved, and and you know, I'll just say this with the Alice Johnson thing. Look, you know, I don't agree with it. But the proper way to go about doing it is the pardon. Pardon power is in the Constitution. You do it case by case. What I'm against is creating this carte blanche. Oh, any lower level thing, let go. Well, wait a minute. Who's going to define that? And and you understand that there's reasons why a lot of them were sentenced to that, even though they were only convicted on a certain charge. This is very dangerous to apply retroactivity. And moreover, for every one person who is oversentenced, there's probably a thousand criminals that are under sentenced or not sentenced at all. Okay. So, you know, if we're going to have, see, this is the problem with the left. They focus in a vacuum, just like on abortion. They'll want to talk about rape. Forget about partial birth abortion and 99% of abortions that are not that. Let's just talk about rape. You know, with immigration, let's not talk about the 29,000 Mexicans killed every year because of our empowering of the drug cartels with the amnesty agenda and that whole environment and economy it creates of cross-migration. Let's forget about the drug crisis, the 70,000 Americans killed by it. Let's forget about MS-13. Let's forget about the fiscal costs, the cultural costs, our hospitals, our schools. Let's focus in a vacuum on the one guy who got into the military somehow or who's a valedictorian. And by the way, we're going to have a lot of good data, exclusive data coming up on who these DACA people are and aren't. But anyway, that's what they do. They focus in a vacuum on a zero-sum game of compassion for people that aren't even – in the case of immigration, they're, they're not our responsibility. And that's the thing. By being compassionate, you're being cruel to everyone else. You're perpetuating the system. The rape trees that they have, the sex trafficking. If you did Daniel Harwood's so-called cruel – agenda on immigration, you would shut this down. You would deter it because there's no economy behind it. We're not going to service it. So you're not going to have the cross-migration. So you're not going to have the empowerment of the drug cartels and and the sanctuary cities that bring in and perpetuate drug trafficking networks because we're going to kick them all out. And you're not going to have you know, even the good so-called younger kids of no fault of their own because they're not going to be in that predicament because they're not going to be brought over. Keep in mind, they're only in this predicament because of the very amnesty policies that the people crying over them supported for for decades. Had we supported my agenda on immigration since the 80s and 90s, you wouldn't have had these people in the predicament. This is a whole deep discussion in and of itself, liberalism and moral, moral relativism, what they do. But, you know, again, let me just 
you know, to prove a point, say, let's say there's 10 people that were over sentenced and 100,000 people who are under sentence, and I focus in a vacuum on those 10 people. Yeah, it's hard to win that debate. But it's like, wait a minute, you got to take a balanced approach. Fundamentally, what is the public policy problem? Are we too tough or too weak on crime? Of course, we're too weak. You know, this is the problem with the retroactivity. If you deter this, you're not going to have this. But I just want to, before I get back, and I know I interrupted myself here on the broader point of criminal aliens and flooding the system and how being tough on crime and immigration will not only save lives, it will save money. And, you know, this whole just lies waste of this whole criminal justice reform issue. Just on Alice Johnson, you know, and, and I'm not saying this with any sarcasm in my voice. I actually really mean this. What will make her release, her commutation meaningful and demonstrate true repentance would be if rather than becoming an agitator to release more drug traffickers, if she went around on a tour and spoke about the dangers of cocaine and talk a little bit, a little bit about what she was involved in, I suspect there was murder involved there. But, you know, again, they're not releasing information. Um, but – you know, talk about that and be an advocate against drug tra- drug traffickers. That would be a nice touch. But, you know, I'll eat my hat if we wound up seeing that. And again, by the way, you know, one thing that is on record is that the judge who sentenced her um, at the hearing, he said something like – I have to get the exact quote. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but this was on record. You know, part of the problem is that most of the documents are from the 90s, so there's you know you, you got to go to the courthouse. It's not you can't access it electronically. Um, you know they just said she was they they never saw someone he never saw someone with with no remorse. So you know she was pretty hardened at the time. Now you want to say she's changed? I, I think legitimately that could very well likely be true. You know, forget about drug trafficking. I think a lot of murderers could change, especially if they get el- elderly. And you can make a whole sympathetic story, but I'm just telling you, if we do this as a policy and keep doing this, as some are getting, trying to get Trump to do, then you know you're going to lose all deterrent. And then, could you please shut up about a drug crisis if you're going to support that agenda? Okay. Anyway, um, so there, there's another issue here with the criminal aliens. It's not just the fact that a lot of them, a big part of the drugs come from them, just like a big part of crime and murders. It's that they're the primary source at the primary trafficking level. The drugs comes primarily from foreign nationals. So even a lot of the Americans that are secondary traffickers that are in prison for drug trafficking. That's due to our pathetic immigration policies. If you didn't have them... You wouldn't have a lot of Americans getting hooked into it. And again, I think the more important thing is you wouldn't have the crime. You wouldn't have the drug overdoses. But again, we're not allowed to care about that. It's all about the cost of incarceration. So fine, you wouldn't have that cost. That's the point. And and by the way, 68% of all aliens in U.S. martial custody, who themselves represent 37% of martial custody, were apprehended where? At the southwest region. Okay? Now, there's one other thing. So every quarter now, pursuant to Trump's executive order, they're going to publish – DOJ, DHS are going to publish information on criminal aliens – And the idea was to also get states to start reporting. Now, obviously, California is not cooperating. I would love to see their numbers. It would be astronomical. But Texas does report the numbers. If you haven't seen it, this is going to blow your mind. According to DHS and Texas Department of Public Safety, over 251,000 criminal aliens have been booked into Texas jails between June 1st, 2011 and April 30th. 2018. So that's almost a period of seven years, a little less. They have been charged with a total of 663,000 offenses in one state over over less than seven years. 663,000 offenses. Okay? So that should give you a glimpse into what Arizona looks like, what California looks like, and even, you know, other states not near the border. It won't be as much, but this is all avoidable. 
1,351 homicides, 7,156 sexual assaults, 9,938 weapons charges, 79,049 assaults, 18,685 burglaries, 79,900 drug charges, almost 80,000 drug charges. It's all coming from externally. It's an external problem that is so redressable. That's the issue. 815,815 kidnappings, 44,882 thefts, and 4,292 robberies. Law enforcement actions have resulted in 296,000 convictions. So these are all people flooding Texas prisons. You know, the big part of the right on crime, Texas Public Policy Foundation, they're based in Texas. Well, I mean, you know, you want to reduce prison population, you should support our immigration policies. You're going to avoid a lot of this in terms of incarceration. Now, by the way, it's worse. It's even worse than I'm making it out to be. See, these are just people identified by DA, meaning Texas catches someone. How do they know they're an illegal alien? I mean, you can usually, you can kind of tell, but how do you confirm that? So DHS would have the fingerprints and the information. DHS would have that, that data. So this is just the people that DHS has confirmed that they have fingerprints. They're limited to criminal alien arrestees who have, quote, had prior interaction with DHS resulting in the collection of their fingerprints. Now, we know that ICE and Border Patrol at best interdict 40 to 50 percent of aliens. We don't even I mean, there's no way of knowing that. So these aren't this is not the 663,000 is likely over a million. These are just the people that that definitively came into contact with DHS at some point and went on to commit crimes in Texas. You can imagine the ones that remained undetected. So so here, here's the point. A, these are all avoidable crimes. But B, you know, the report estimates that the cost of just one of those aliens housed in U.S. Marshal custody. I'm sorry, not... Not one of those aliens. The cost of the aliens in U.S. Marshal custody for just one quarter, right, one quarter of a year, three months, was $134 million. Okay? You know, that that's over $500 million, over half a billion a year, just in the U.S. Marshal custody of aliens, not to mention Bureau of Prisons, which has, you know— whatever, twice as many, and God knows how many are on the state level. We don't even know. Criminal justice reform on the federal system, but even a little bit in the state system, begins with border and interior enforcement on immigration. That's the bottom line. If you want to save lives and money, you have to deter the crime at its source by being tough both on domestic crime and on the border, not weak on both like the phony conservative movement is pushing and getting Trump sucked into. That's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. Got to be tough on both. Got to be tough on everything. And you deter the problem. But you see what I mean? You talk about, oh, so many, you know, again, when you're talking about non-drug crimes, so then, you know, most of it's just, you know, we have our violent people. We shouldn't be letting in violent people from Mexico and Honduras. Um, it's not inherent kind of more in these people. Maybe things like kidnappings, I think, are definitely more from, from that crowd. But when it comes to drugs, it's worse than that. It's that not only is a large percentage of it from foreign nationals, it's upstream. That's the source of it. So even a lot of the ones that are Americans, they're only getting roped into it because we have amnesty agenda all the magnets, sanctuary cities, and are not deporting people expeditiously. And they remain around to commit crimes and traffic drugs. You know, those are your people like Alice Johnson. If you wouldn't have foreign nationals operating here, it would be harder for people like that to get involved in it. Then come back to me and tell me we have an incarceration problem, okay? Anyway, this is stuff you're not going to hear elsewhere, and it's, it's a shame. 
But you know, we're, we're going to have a lot more on all this stuff this week on immigration and crime. This these issues are only expanding; they're not going away. On the opioid stuff, which is just unbelievable, and, and you know, look, it, it it ties all together. And you know, finally, getting back to the courts. The courts are slaughtering us on immigration. They're slaughtering us on election law. They're slaughtering us on religious liberty. These are issues we cannot run away from. These are issues we cannot afford to lose. So to say amidst losing a broader war, we're winning a couple of skirmishes, but only because the battle lines are so deeply drawn into the heart of our territory. It's like we're fighting for our lives. Yeah, well, you know, they, they almost slit our throat. This time we got a reprieve and they didn't slit our throat, but, oh, they have another hundred opportunities to slit our throats. Are we winning? No. We got to deal with the courts. And this week I'm going to try to try to deal with some, some members of Congress on this. I know Andy Biggs from Arizona is very interested in this. I want to have him on the show at some point. Um, but anyway, send me your comments. Send me in general, what you want to be, dis- what you want me to dis- discuss. I'm curious what you thought of our last guest, um, Derek Meltz from, uh, you know, he was a former head of DEA Special Operations Division. I thought that was a pretty interesting show. Um, we're going to try to have similar guests on, but yeah, I mean, this is going to be a big week. They have the farm bill as well, um, which in the Senate is even worse than the House. I mean, I, I just again, I was going to end here, but I want to make one more point. Isn't it funny how they're using record low unemployment as a means of saying, hey, we need more foreign labor rather than using it as a means to say, wow, now is a beautiful opportunity, the the superlative time to stand before the American people and say, look, there's so many job opportunities. You know, let's work. Let's not stay on welfare. Time to make ironclad work requirements and start limiting welfare. No, God forbid they should ever do that. Um and again, you know, we're just going to keep speaking the truth where others will not. But you got to support our advertisers. Sponsor for today is We the People Holsters. We'll come back at you later this week with some more exciting guests as well as solo shows. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.